just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and, as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the show. My name's Johnny Ball, and this is Speaking Influence. This is the show where we delve into the knowledge, skills, experience, stories, and secrets of some of the world's best influence and persuasion experts. We have regularly in-depth conversations with people who are out in the world applying and often teaching tools of ethical influence and persuasion, and we'll even stop and take a look at the not-so-ethical side of things from time to time. Guests on the show range from successful authors and entrepreneurs, secret service members, psychologists, marketing and branding experts, even the occasional professional comedian like today, or world champions in public speaking and storytelling, former cult members, neuroscientists, voice coaches, professional stylists, political speech writers, and public speaking experts. Every episode takes our guest knowledge and experience and turns it into actionable information that you can use to build a deeper understanding of how the world of influence and persuasion works to become a better wielder of the weapons of ethical influence and persuasion in life and in business, leaving each of us a little smarter and better off than before and better able to protect ourselves against unethical manipulations. My guest today is an expert in the art of comedy. He's known for being a clean comedian as well, because it takes a lot of work to be clean in your stand-up comedy, as Sean will be explaining to us. I do believe that the ability to add humor into what we do is an essential part of being more influential and persuasive. It may not be for everybody. Not everybody has the confidence for humor, and some people may be feeling that they don't have enough of a sense of humor. In that case, then, this may not be the show for you. You might prefer my next show, which is going to be with the amazing Korean Tharakan, who's going to be talking about storytelling, and that's going to be incredible. But in this show, we're really talking about how you can add some humor into your presentations, into your time with your friends in your social life, just to be a bit more humorous in life, and maybe even just find the funnier side in life for yourself. Find the funny in things that aren't necessarily inherently funny is a good skill to have and a good way to reframe life. There's a reason why we like people who can help us laugh at things in the world and in our lives and the ridiculousness of the everyday things which we sometimes do just need to be able to laugh about. Laughter relieves stress, laughter connects people, it makes us feel like we're sharing an experience. Laughter makes the people who make us laugh more likable, more trustworthy. And trust is a critical part of rapport, which is essential in influence and persuasion, which is why we should not ignore it as a skill in the influence and persuasion world. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode with Sean Eli. 
and do go and check out his website as well as sean says a bit later on not this isn't so much an episode that's full of jokes so if you actually want to see sean in action go and visit his website brainchampagne.com you'll find the link in the show notes and whilst you're there make sure you subscribe as well enjoy the show welcome to speaking influence the show that explores the psychology and application of ethical influence and persuasion in life and business with persuasive presentations and podcasting coach, Johnny Ball. If you have an online business, you need to work on list building. The easiest way to get started for free is ConvertKit. It's recommended by industry pros like Pat Flynn, Chris Ducker, and our very own Johnny Ball. Click the link in the show notes and start building your list today. Welcome to the show, and we're really lucky today to be able to carry on a theme that we've had on some previous shows where we've been able to speak to humorous speakers and professional comedians. We have a professional comedian with us today, and he is known for being a clean professional comedian, which I think is very important in certain environments if you want to be able to work anywhere. So his name is Sean Eli. Please welcome to Speaking of Influence, Sean Eli. Thank you. I, I thought I was known as the pretty, beautiful, stunningly good-looking comedian, but I'll take clean. I saw that somewhere else, but I thought it was a bit of a mouthful for introducing you on the show today. Oh, come on. <laughs> so welcome to the show, Sean. And I've had a really nice chat with you before. And you are not just a clean comedian, you also build as a, a corporate comedian. I'd like to start off before we get into why you are a clean and corporate comedian. How you even got into comedy in the first place? Were, were you always funny? Did you find that it was naturally drawn to you? Or was it something that you de- wanted to develop for yourself? I think most people start out funny. If you look at kids playing, they're laughing all the time. And it may be stupid stuff, but they say and do things that make each other laugh. And I think what happens is as you get older and you go to school and you try to make people laugh, they tell you to shut up. So people get their... Not their sense of humor, but their willingness to display it kind of beat out of them a little bit. So they're not looking for punchlines. But some people, and the class clown is a prime example. He gets a lot of trouble. The kid who's too shy to be the class clown is still sitting there thinking all the funny thoughts. And then when he grows up, he's like, oh, wait, there's an outlet. I can be funny now. So I think think most people have a sense of humor. And by that, I don't just mean appreciating jokes, but the ability to create comedy. It's just that it's not a developed muscle in most people. Where did your journey into humor start then in more of a professional sense? Well, I would say in an amateur sense in high school, I was put in charge of the the high school computer club magazine. And I thought it was much more important to put jokes into it than to put actual stuff into it. And so I always got in the habit of just writing down things that I thought were funny. And when Jay Leno took over the Tonight Show from Johnny Carson in the 90s here in the U.S., I would notice that he would be telling the kind of jokes that I would be thinking of when I read the news in the morning. So I started sending him jokes and selling him jokes freelance. And then I was on a date with somebody and she said, well, you should try performing and talk me into trial. And it eventually worked. And I said, oh, I can do this for a living. Great. Where did the performing start then? Was it just an open mic night or something uh, a bit more you know, formal? I am so lucky that I did not start with an open mic night because I probably, like everybody, you suck and then you go home crying and most people don't go back. So <laughs> she told me to start with a comedy class and it's such a difference because you have some professional instruction, 
you have a supportive environment, you're with other people in the same position you are just starting out. And then when you, after eight weeks or seven weeks, you have a performance in a club, it's in front of people who want you to succeed. It's in front of friends and family of everybody in the class. An open mic is the opposite. An open mic is a bunch of comics, at least in New York. There's no audience except for the other comedians and all they want to do is wait for their five minutes. They don't want to listen to anybody else. Right. So that's a very challenging environment. And, and that brings up an interesting point that not everybody perhaps realizes, because a lot of the audience for this show into public speaking, either professionally, professional speakers who are paid as speakers or professionally in the sense that they do a lot of speaking in their work. And not everyone thinks they can be funny because they don't always realize that you can learn it. You either are or you aren't. And yet it is a very learnable skill, although it probably does help, as you mentioned, probably does help to already be a little bit funny and to be able to make people laugh in other ways. How do you know whether you could do comedy or not, do you think? I guess the only way to find out if you can do anything is to try. I mean, making your friends laugh and making people laugh on stage are two very different skills. And I'm not going to say one is harder or better or higher than the other, but it's sort of like the difference between baseball and golf. You know, in both sports, you're swinging a stick at a ball, but in one case, the ball's coming at you and it's moving and you have a limited time frame to hit it. And golf, you can take your time and the ball is always going to be the same place. Yeah. So making your friends laugh, you have a common frame of reference and it's easier but in some ways it's harder also because they're not expecting a joke. When I'm at a comedy club, the audience is warmed up. They're there ready to laugh. They've been laughing. Another punchline is just another thing to laugh at. So in a sense, in some ways it's easy, in some ways it's hard. So you said you were already writing jokes. Did your comedy classes bring more of that out in you or did it actually give you structures and ideas that you didn't have before you did the class? It's both. The first lesson the instructor gave us was he said, go home and just write about things that piss you off and we'll get comedy from there. And I went up to him after class and I said, I understand this is how you do things. I haven't been on stage, but I've been writing comedy for a long time. I have a lot of comedy material. Should I just show up with that? He said, no, just do the lesson and see where it goes from there. And I don't know that I used anything that I wrote that pissed me off in my first routine but it was definitely a writing exercise. Yeah, and for sure. There are writing exercises comics can do to improve their writing. Yeah, definitely. But ranting and raving is, is a good place to start, for sure. Yeah. And there can be a lot of humor there, right? I mean, uh, comics like uh, Lewis Black, that, that's that, that whole act, right? It's ranting and raving about stuff is what they're known for. So you can mine a lot of material there. What, what, how would you describe best, other than being clean and corporate, how would you describe your sense of humor you started well i'm more a storyteller i didn't start out telling stories i started out jokey one-liners and short silly stuff and i evolved into storytelling which is what i always wanted to be i didn't want to be a comic who's just silly but i would describe my sense of humor as sort of new york jewish sarcastic right. so making just finding the absurdity in things and there's a lot of absurdity to find in things as well. So it's a, a bit of observational and storytelling and uh, subversion of, of perhaps norms or expectations there as well, which I, which I guess is critical in comedy to some degree. Do, do you have your own particular comedy heroes living or dead? Yeah, well, I could name a lot of people that you've never heard of. 
because the, the beauty of being a comic in New York is there's a lot of really funny people around. So I could name some of my colleagues that I think are brilliant. Joe DeVito, Lori Kilmartin. In the UK now, Al Lubell is an American comedian who is living in London. I think he's one of the funniest people ever. As far as people you might have heard of, I would say Robert Klein, Rita Rudner, Jim Gaffigan. Yeah, yeah. I think out of those, the, the ones I'm familiar with are Rita Rudner, who I remember seeing in Vegas years ago, who was very funny. And uh, Jim Gaffigan, I think he's still doing, he's still doing a lot of work as well. So they've definitely broken the international market over time as well. Mine started before there were airplanes, so maybe <laughs> not quite. I think he's, I think he's in his eighties, and I mean, I worked with them maybe three years ago, so he's probably still performing, or at least he was before COVID. Wow, still performing in his eighties—that's that's incredible. So, is is it a profession you think that once you're once you're in it, you never really want to quit? It depends on the person. There's a lot of comedians who just do it, and it's a hard life. So they say, I mean, it's a great life, I think, but if you're just a club comic and you're on the road all the time, staying in crappy hotels, it's not a great life if you want to be home on weekends. And so a lot of them, once they get, you know, something else to do, you know, movies or TV show, they don't want to do stand up anymore. But there are some people who are still doing it. I mean, George Burns was still performing until he was only 99 and I would do it if it's comfortable. Listen, you do it until you don't like it anymore. Yeah. The problem is in America, there's no retirement plan. You know, you've right. got to save your own money for when you stop. Yeah. So it's, for some people, it might be a necessity, but for many, they may actually choose to, to keep performing until they drop. I know for me, the work I do, the stuff I do in my life, the stuff that I don't ever see myself retiring from or quitting, unless I get to a position where I either, like you said, don't want to do it anymore or can't do it anymore. And then to the backup plans. How did you end up particularly then moving into corporate markets? Was that perhaps a, a professional decision in terms of being able to achieve more, more regular work, or was it a particularly attractive prospect to you anyway for that audience? It's less regular work in the sense that there's less of it. And you can't really keep going back to the same place year after year because they've heard your material. But unless it's, you know, we're going to send you to New York office this year and next year we're sending you to Dallas and, you know, the next year we're going to send you to our San Francisco office, but you can't really keep going back. But it's a business decision. One of the good things about the comedy class I took is the instructor said, if you can be clean, be clean, because there's so much more work you can do. Because if you're not a clean comic, and I would say 90% of comics can't do a clean half hour, 45. And by clean, I mean language and, and content. You can't do that. You can't do corporate work. A lot of the theaters won't hire you. I do, do a lot of shows in small theaters and they won't book you if you're not clean. And right. you're pretty much stuck in comedy clubs. And comedy, in a comedy club, a comedian, unless he or she is famous, is a commodity. They don't have to book you. They'll book somebody else. So the pay isn't great. So corporate work pays better. It's sometimes a lot harder because people may not want to be there. They may be at a conference and it's 10 o'clock at night. They want to go home or they want to go to their hotel room and go to sleep, or they want to have drinks with their colleagues. They don't want to sit there for another hour and listen to this guy, but do, it's yeah. where the money is. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you find that you tailor your performances to each particular gig that you do, or do you have a pretty set routine that you like to go and do? It's a combination of both. So if I'm doing a show for doctors and i have some material about I have a couple of jokes about the medical profession that is definitely going into the set that night 
if it's something where I don't have material, but I can think of something to say, I will definitely try to work it in. Here's a secret. If I'm doing a half hour set for doctors, let's say, and I open with a couple of jokes about doctors. And then towards the end of my set, I do another joke about the medical profession. And the rest of it is just jokes about anything other than medicine. But hearing jokes about the topic in the beginning, jokes about the topic towards the end, people will leave saying, oh my God, his whole, whole routine was about us. Right. And you can, a colleague of mine, Johnny Watson, taught me a lesson. He said, if you want to make the, the material about the audience, and this would be a comedy club audience, let's say, and there's a guy, and you have jokes about being a stockbroker, and you see a guy in the front row, and you say, "Are you a stockbroker?" And if he says, "No, you know, I'm a farmer," which is like the opposite of being a stockbroker, and you say, "Oh, because you look like a stockbroker," and then you do your stockbroker joke, somehow he thinks the joke's about him. It's got nothing to do with him. Right. You know, he could be in overalls carrying a pitchfork, clearly, you know, a farmer and not a stockbroker, but you can, you can still do the joke, and he still thinks it's about him. Do you feel then that that level of interaction is, is critical or is it just useful sometimes? It's useful more than sometimes. I think it's called crowd work where you talk to the audience, you know, what's your name? What do you do for a living? You know, where are you from? Just to get the audience feeling like they're part of something. Because it's a weird social construct that they're being told, sit down and shut up. It's, we're pretending this is a dialogue, but it's not. It's a monologue. So you're going to feel like we want to make this feel like a conversation, even though it's not. So he's going to talk to you a little bit to, to bring that out. And then it'll just be jokes. But when I do comedy club work, a lot of times I try to get there early. Even if let's say it's 11 o'clock show and my spots at midnight, I'll try to get there at 11 to see what the MC does warming up the audience, talking to them to see what the audience is like. And I can give you a really weird example. So I get there and the, and I, get caught traffic and I couldn't be there at a comedy club at the beginning when I say to the MC, what's the audience like? And he said, oh, they're, they're fine. Off to one side, there's people who do this for a living and off to that side, there's people, you know, from this area and in the, right in the front is a family from Latvia. But I told him we wouldn't have any Latvian jokes for them. And I said, okay, I got this. And when I went on stage, I said, oh, I was told, you know, you're from Latvia. And you were told there'd be no Latvian jokes. And I speak three words of Latvian. And I said, I've got the best joke in Latvian. And I said the three words in Latvian. And the family cracked up. And then everybody, of course, said, well, how did he make, what is the odds that you have a comedian who speaks Latvian, knows jokes in Latvian, and there's Latvians in the audience? The fact is, all I really said to them is, horse, cat, thank you. (laughs) So ridiculous that they laughed. So. If you can cater it to, to the audience, it's definitely helpful. And people feel, you know, when it seems spontaneous, it, it's perceived as funny. Yeah. So the reason we try to make it sound like it's off the cuff is it, it works better. And if it's absolutely, truly off the cuff, that's even better. I think this is one of those things that is just as true for public speaking as for comedy, that audience connection. Yeah. How do you feel that you go about other than the interaction parts that you just mentioned, how do you establish connection with your audience? Ah, I mean, I don't know that I am really good at establishing a connection other than it's a shared experience that we're all laughing at the same thing. So a lot of it is the audience's connection with each other. Cause if you're, you know, you're a farmer in the front from Iowa 
and the guy in the back is a stockbroker from New York and you have nothing in common, you now have one thing in common. You're laughing at the same materials. The audience feels like they're part of something and they have a kinship. As far as my relationship with the audience, I just do the best I can to make them like me. It's a lot of it is about being likable. There are comics who aren't likable and make it work, but yeah. I think it's a lot easier if they like you. Right. And, and certainly as a professional speaker, it's definitely a lot easier if your audience likes you. Otherwise, <laughs> well, a professional speaker, presumably they're there to hear what you have to say. I had a professional speaker say to me, my God, your job is so much harder than mine because you have to make people laugh. And I said, your job is so much harder than mine. You have to be interesting. I don't have to be interested. I just have to be funny. So it's, you know, what are your skills? Well, there are a lot of professional speakers who would argue that you do have to be both if you want yeah. to be well paid for being right. a professional speaker. And this is one of the reasons why I've been so keen to speak to people who either are known for being humorous speakers or are working professionally in comedy, because it is such a critical part. And uh, as Jeremy Nicholas, who's on my show, what about saying you don't have to be funny, but if you want to be paid as yeah. a speaker, you do. And if you want to be booked together as a speaker, you do, because that's often what people will remember. But of course, you don't have to be funny in the same way as a comedian. You're not going to bomb. You're not, your job isn't there being there to be funny. Your job is to inform right. and entertain to a degree. But as a comedian, your job is to get people to laugh. Your job is to have people reward. So you, if you bomb as a speaker, it's very different to bombing as a comedian, although I'm sure the feeling you end up with afterwards is probably very similar. But I think the chances of that are much higher in comedy and the, your ego is on the line perhaps even more with stand-up because I think you have to put a lot of yourself into generally into humor unless you're telling other people's jokes. Well, I think the, I don't tell other people's jokes, but I think the ego uh, is part of it. But the difference is I know my stuff is funny. I know I'm going to get, you know, let's say on average three laughs a minute. I know where the laughs are going to come from. And I've been doing this for 18 years and it almost always works the way I expect it to work. So, and a professional speaker who has four or five jokes scattered through his half hour talk pretty much knows the same thing and may not be as good at telling the jokes as I am because, you know, I'm getting a lot more laughs and that's my main focus. The speaker's main focus is his content. My only focus is his comedy. But I think in either case, we're going to be fought. Yeah. You know, the professional speaker, well, let's put it this way. If the professional speaker doesn't get the laughs he wants, he's, he may still succeed. People may leave and they may not focus on the fact that jokes didn't work, but they're going to say, wow, I learned so much or he has such an, or she had such an interesting story to tell. I mean, if you watch a dramatic movie, there's a few things to laugh at. Almost every movie has something to laugh at some yeah. on the movie. So, you know, comedy is scattered through everything. Yeah. I mean, uh, even in Shakespearean plays, you will find comic relief and it's, uh, it's an important part to, and it actually, in many ways, even if you have a serious subject, the contrast of humor and, and seriousness can actually really help to emphasize and strengthen any points that you're making. It's what can call even in storytelling. It's like a real uh, emotional slam when you go from one emotion to another that is very much at the other end of the spectrum. So it can be a very powerful tool. I, I wonder for you, what have been some of your highest and lowest points in comedy? Lowest is anytime a show doesn't go well, I think is, is terrible. And it's been, you know, I don't want to jinx it. It's been a long time since I've had a bad, as you get better, you learn the techniques to deal with 
And here's the thing. When you start out in comedy, when a show isn't going well, all of your instincts are raw and you do things that make it worse instead of better. So if the audience isn't responding, the tendency is to withdraw, to step back and, and be shy and less forceful and then rush through your material. It's instinctual to rush through your material just because you want to get it over with as fast as possible. And that's absolutely the wrong thing. You eventually learn if things aren't, aren't going well, you step forward. You be bolder and more forceful and more energetic and also slow down. Chris Rock once said, if you think you're going too slowly, slow down. Because almost every comedian, you know, even the professionals who've been doing it a long time, talk too fast. Yeah. And so that's, that's what you do if things aren't going well. But it's been a while since I've had, you know, a bad show. As far as high points. Actually, one of the most amazing high points of my career was about two weeks ago. I did a corporate show on Zoom. It was 15 or 20 people. And Zoom is a very hard medium to do comedy because it's not just I'm not in the same room with the audience. The audience is not in the same room with the audience. They're all, you know, at home in their offices, having been staring at screens, you know, 30 or 40 hours a week for the last year. And there's a delay with laughter. So you have to learn. Tell a joke when you hit the punchline, you pause, and it may be three seconds before you hear the laughter and they, they hear each other laughing because I tell a joke, it may be a second before they hear it and they've got to register that it's a joke and start laughing. And then other people hear that laughter a second later and then they start laughing and you don't hear that for a second. So there could be a few seconds. And I had a really, really, really good corporate show on Zoom. And I'm like, wow, I, I made this work. This was a challenging show and I made it work. Yeah, uh, that is uh, it's quite an achievement. That is quite an achievement because I, I, some of the comedians I've spoken to have said they have been getting work on Zoom, have, as you say, been finding that very challenging, not having that same kind of feedback that you get with live audiences or the same energy or buzz you have with people in the room with you. And uh, so, so making that work, I think, I hope a lot of comedians are tuning in and, and hearing this who maybe have been having that struggle and knowing, just knowing that it's possible can can be a big help to people so that's great to hear you know what the secret is shut up the secret, <laughs> is, the secret is pause and pause longer and wait and i have a benefit i'll have one joke where literally the silence is the punchline and so the audience doesn't realize it's a joke until the silence continues now they're like oh that's what we're supposed to laugh at and they laugh and that's hard because it may take three, four seconds. And I tell the punchline and in my head, I'm literally saying one, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000. I don't want to step on my punch on my laughter by going ahead. But on the other hand, it's torture to wait for the laughter, but I learned to do it. And this sort of has trained me that it's okay to do that. So it's worked well for zoom shows, but the secret really is shut up and wait for the laughter. It'll be there. You told a good joke. They're going to laugh. You just got to give them the time to catch up with it. So, so timing really is the secret of comedy, or at least in this respect. <laughs> at least it is on Zoom. <laughs> it's super important. For, for you, do you have a daily creation process? Are you regularly creating and writing comedy or finding humor in things? Or do you just have like maybe particular points where you will write lots and lots of material or take yourself on retreats for writing? How do you go about your creative process? I don't have a formal writing process. You know, some comics say I sit down for an hour and I write 
And they say, yes, I don't necessarily be funny. I'm just going to get thoughts on paper and eventually there'll be comedy in it or there won't, but I'll work it out. And I don't work that way. If I think of something funny, I write it down. It ends up, I write, usually scribble it on a piece of paper. Some comics put stuff in their phone. Some comics carry a notebook and they'll lose the notebook. And to me, I don't understand that at all. So I just write it on a scrap of paper. I always have paper and pen with me. I write it down and I type it into my computer and I back up my computer. And sometimes something could just, an idea could sit in the computer for five years before I develop it. Sometimes I think of something as I have a dream and I wake up and I'm like, oh my God, there's jokes there. So yeah. I have a routine. I haven't done it in, in since COVID started because it's about a Chinese wedding and it's not making fun of Chinese people, but just the topic may make people uncomfortable because I'm, I may be seen as picking on Asian. So I, that's going to be a while before I can tell that again. But mm. what I did is I just, and this wedding was 20 years ago. And I woke up in the middle of the night thinking, oh, if I change these few details, then I've got a story that's funny. And there was nothing funny about the wedding, but I changed some details and, and now it's a story and it's about 10 minutes long. So it's a big bit of comedy material. That yeah. just came from waking up in the middle of the night. And that happens to me more often than I would expect. But do you think it is something that you train yourself into a particular way? I think like the more you think along those paths, the easier it gets to think in those sorts of ways and that you spot humor more or you spot the opportunities for it more. Oh, absolutely. You're, you're looking for comedy is about breaking patterns. It's, it's really misdirection and surprise. So you're looking for a joke. Somebody says something and you think, oh, I could switch this around. I had a boss when I was a banker, when I was writing comedy, but before I started performing and he said, I can see the gears in your head turning. When I say something like you're looking for something funny to reply. And I think that's part of it. We just, we see something and we want to change it and make it funny. Yeah. So definitely, definitely a way of thinking. I, I've been doing uh, a comedy program with a lady called Judy Carter. You may, you may oh, yeah, know her. Yeah. Carter, sure. So working through her new comedy Bible book, which has a great workbook with it as well. A bit working with a comedy buddy. And we've it's been... over there and you can't see it because it's that side of that shelf. Right. But it's there. Yeah. I, a bit, I, I have uh, all, all uh, e-versions. So you can't even see it on my shelf. It's all, all downloaded. But I've been finding it very good. I've, I've been doing daily writing and daily going through some of these exercises and practicing for my comedy buddy once a week to do things like rants and raves and act taps and stuff like that. And, and been finding definitely do start to think more in those sorts of ways or start to notice more of the funnier things or finding even humor in things that I didn't think were funny before and seeing that there could be a humorous perspective to that. It's just very interesting to get all this stuff out there and, and out of my head. And I am finding, I am finding for myself that doing a daily writing process is working very well for me and, and probably a good way to keep going. But also the perhaps downside of that is there's so much there. It's a lot to wade through to try and find those little nuggets that have been been coming out in daily writing. So I know that it's going to, at some point I'm going to have to transcribe all of that. So that's going to be an interesting process. Well, I mean, my process is if I see something weird, a joke may pop into my head. I was going to a, a gig in Pennsylvania a couple of years ago and I passed up, you know, a few miles from the gig on the main street, I passed a tattoo parlor and the name of the tattoo parlor was Tattoos, T-A-T-T-O-O-Z. And that's clearly not how you spell tattoos. So <laughs> when I got to the gig, I said, and one of my favorite things is to, if I think of something on the way to a gig, I'm so energetic and 
ready to try out the new joke that I opened with the new joke, which is by the way, a terrible, stupid thing to do for a comedian because you don't know if it's going to work, but sure. just the energy of my enthusiasm usually sells it. And I said, and they, you know, it was in their town. They all knew it. I said, you know, I, I saw your tattoo parlor tattoos with the Z or Z as we would say in this country. And, and I said, I know I went in and I know you're thinking, Sean, it's a stupid idea to get a tattoo from somebody you can't spell, but it's fine because I paid them with counterfeit money. I paid them with a stack of $12 bills. So, <laughs> you know, I just thought of something stupid to make fun of on the way to the gig. And yeah. that's, you know, when I see tattoos with the Z, my brain is thinking there's got to be a punchline here somewhere. It's, it's interesting you said it was your, your enthusiasm that carries you through. And I'd like to sort of touch on that aspect because I think it's really important in presentations, comedy or otherwise, attitude, confidence, like the criticalness of that. Uh, and that very often is where people go wrong, that, that lacking the confidence in doing these things is often what makes them fall flat. How do you develop that do you think or what advice would you have to people to have that right confidence and attitude on the stage it took me a long time to to get comfortable on stage and to have the energy that i need and you can be a low energy comic and be successful but a higher energy comic is going to be more successful so if you just stand on stage reciting your jokes like you are a robot you know they may be good jokes and you may get lost but it's not the same as if you sell them. And for me, it took a lot of time for that to work. I've worked with new comics who naturally have confidence or natural or at trained actors and they know how to sell a joke. And a lot of times they get laughs just because they're good at selling the joke, but there's not much of a joke there. And most of them reach a plateau because they never really learned to write a joke because they didn't need to when they were starting out because they were as funny as everybody else starting out because of their energy rather than because of their content. Yeah. So a lot more of the physical kind of comedy, which I, I maybe I say is not perhaps my favorite personal, personally, well, not my favorite kind of comedy. I think I prefer things that are a little bit more, maybe more standard comedy, but definitely more intelligent more comedy. Yeah. I don't yeah, mean more cerebral. quite energetic. I don't mean physical comedy, like slapstick, like falling down. I just mean guys who really know how to sell a joke and there's like, I don't want to put Chris Rock in this category because his jokes are strong, but the way Chris Rock performs, he's a preacher. He's really energetic and he really knows how to talk. And that's what I'm talking about. That sort of energy. There's yeah. people who are like that, but don't have a punchline and they still, they do okay for a while. They can still sell it, but ultimately you know, having both is what it's going to take to have a, a proper career. That makes a lot of sense too, because I think this is true as a speaker as well, that one of the things that so many speakers lack is enthusiasm and energy when they speak, real heart when they speak, passion, I guess, as well, real passion when they're speaking. So certain types of churches, for example, are doing that very, very well and have been for a long time of being able to really sell the passion and the drive and the power and, and people get swept away with the emotion that they generate through that Absolutely. energy. They're, they're selling. And if you're a speaker, if you're some sort of a motivational speaker or, you know, you overcut, overcame diversity or you succeeded in something and that's what you're speaking of, you're a salesperson. You need the enthusiasm. If somebody yeah. got up there and said, I won seven gold medals, I worked really hard and I trained, you know, 12 hours a day for 15 years and I won seven gold medals and the secret is really trying very hard. Well, what's wrong with you? 
But if they yeah. get up there and enthusiastic and they're salespeople, they're preachers, that's what being a speaker is about. Yeah. Although jumping on Oprah's couch doesn't apparently work. It's maybe a bit much. <laughs> if anyone remembers that particular you know, incident. Oprah, Oprah can afford a new couch. <laughs> so can Tom Cruise, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, so let's get a bit further into how you could help other people maybe be a bit funnier or start down the path of adding some humor into their presentations or maybe even trying out some stand-up. Well, I would say to all professional speakers who want to be funnier, hire me to write some jokes for your talk. So <laughs> that, that is one way you can be funnier. Another way is just, you know, you describe Judy Carter's book or plenty of writing exercises. You do writing exercises. I think it gets you, it trains you to learn how to get better at creating content. And especially, I would also say, if you're a motivational speaker or a professional speaker in any regard, when you're on stage, you're the authority and people are looking up to you. It's okay to be self-deprecating. That will, that will make them, that will humanize you. If you're, you know, somebody who's achieved great success and you start out by telling a story of how you failed, then they feel like, oh, I can succeed because this guy screwed up and he still succeeded. Yeah. If you get up there and you say, you know, I was born great and I trained and I won the seven gold medals. They're like, well, I can't do that because he was born great. But if he gets up there and, you know, says, hi, I'm Michael Jordan. And I was cut from my high school junior varsity basketball team. They're like, wait a minute. Michael Jordan was cut from the second team. You know, then they're going to listen. Hmm. How would your process go then in terms of helping someone else by creating some jokes and material for them? What, what would you do with them to be able to do that? I think what people would do is generally send me at least part of their talk or what their expertise and what they're talking about. And I would see if I can come up with some material because a lot of times, I mean, like writing late night TV show, American late night TV show monologue material is usually a joke is three sentences. It's the topic and the focus and then the punchline and the punchline is just misdirection. So those you read the news, a good comic can read a newspaper, come up with a half a dozen jokes in you know, 10 or 15 minutes. So if I hear what somebody's talking about, I can say, oh, well, how about switch this around? Or they could tell me a story of how they succeeded or failed. And I could say, oh, how about you throw this in? And sometimes it would be a lie, but if it's funny, they may not care that, you know, somebody else made up the story instead of something that actually happened. On the other hand, I know people would say, well, I can't say that because it's not true. They want to mm -hmm. be true to themselves. Yeah. But it, it shouldn't be hard to find comedy material in whatever somebody's talking about. Do, do you think it's helpful to watch other comedians or watch comedy specials on Netflix and that kind of thing? You know, I didn't used to, but I notice now if I'm listening to other comedians, I will think of a joke that is nothing. It may be on the same topic as their joke, but really nothing to do with, um, what they're talking about. So it's not, it's not even using their setup to generate a different punchline. And I can give an example. I was driving to a gig and Gary Goldman was being interviewed and he wasn't doing standup. He was just being interviewed. And Gary Goldman, I don't know if you know him in the UK is a very funny comedian in America, very successful. And he was talking about depression. And I started thinking about jokes about suicide. Suicide is the one topic. If you'd ask me, would you ever write, is there any topic you'd never write a joke about? I would say I would never joke about suicide. 
And then I came up with the premise that I could never commit suicide because I'm too much of a perfectionist and I would never finish the suicide note. And that, you know, wasn't what he was talking about, but that was, that created the idea in my head. And then later on, it turns out Gary Goldman in a later comedy special had the opposite joke saying he could never commit yeah. suicide because he hates to write things down. So yeah. sort of the opposite joke on the same, same premise. But yeah. Watching comedians sometimes just gives me an idea separate from other talking. I, I had found that I love podcasts, not just being a podcaster, but listening to them as well. And, and I have with Amazon Audible audiobooks, the free podcasts that are included with that. And a lot of them are comedy and comedy performances, a lot of them from Australia, from the UK and some from America as well. And I do find that listening to them, or at least listening to the themes that people are utilizing for their comedy, things like perhaps going back to childhood, school experiences, that does trigger ideas for me of like, oh yeah, well, I've got those kinds of experiences as well. And some of these are really funny in, in different ways. It does give you ideas for, I find, for material. And uh, so, so long as you actually go and wipe them down and don't lose them. Because that's the thing, like you say, is you know, recording it and keeping it because you think it, you'll remember it and you never do oh. unless, you, unless you write it down. We, we all have, <laughs> yeah, we all have the ability to record, right? We, well, yeah, everybody's got to follow with them. Everybody could have a pen with them. I am surprised at how many times I've been in an open mic night and somebody said to me, does anybody have a pen? I'm like, you're a writer. How do you not have a pen? But at the same time, I sometimes think of jokes when I'm working out and I don't have anything with me. If I'm running or I'm out rowing on the water, I've got no way of recording anything. The only thing I could do is just keep saying the topic over and I'll remember the punchline if I remember the premise, but I have to just keep saying it over and over again so that I don't forget. Yeah. And a lot of times I'll wake up in the middle of the night with an idea and I'm too tired to write it down. I think, oh, it's so vivid. I'll remember it the next morning. Never do. And, and like the, the ether of dreams is vanished in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Although I remember the nightmare I had last night about taking a turn, <laughs> taking a turn too fast in my car and crashing into the wall. So. <laughs> I, I, I yeah, yeah, this is interesting. I've been remembering my dreams more and more recently, and I think it has to do with my daily writing and my daily journaling. It's like I find most days I, I remember what I've been dreaming about more more than not, and that's been an unusual experience. But I'm pretty sure that's due to the morning journaling and writing stuff down not long after I've got up, but keeping maybe just keeping in that headspace a bit. That's what I'm putting it down to as well. I, I well, am not. That's a better sure. explanation because I think the reason I'm having more vivid dreams and nightmares because the pandemic is affecting me and, and waking me up several times during the night, whereas I used to sleep through. So if you wake up after a dream, you're more likely to remember it. If you sleep through, it's been drowned out by five other dreams. Oh, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Yeah, maybe because I've been waking up a bit earlier has something to do with it as well. I, I wonder for yourself, what resources would you recommend to people who are perhaps wanting to be a bit funnier? We've talked about Judy Carter's book, but are there any other resources that you might recommend or any other books that have been perhaps helpful to you on your journey? Uh, I, there's a lot of, there didn't used to be, but there's a lot of books on, on how to write stand-up comedy. I would say that if you're a public speaker and you want to be funnier, you can take a stand-up comedy class. Most of the people who take a stand-up comedy class aren't looking at it as a career. They just want to be funnier in life or funnier in, in public speaking or in, in their work situation. So if you take a stand-up comedy class, you're not going to be somebody surrounded by people who want to be professional comedians. It's all going to be people like you. And you're going to learn if the instructor's any good at all, 
you're going to learn techniques for writing jokes. You're going to have an instructor sit down and say, here's what you need to do. And as a perfect example, if you, you have a punchline, the punch part of the punchline, the surprise has to come at the end of the sentence. If it comes in the middle of the sentence, then you keep talking, you're ste- stepping in your punchline. So as a professional speaker, you want, you want to hit the punchline and then stop so people can laugh. You don't want to have extraneous words to continue the sentence. So that's the kind of technique you would learn in a comedy class. If you went in with the joke, the instructor would say, no, switch it around this way. So the punch is at the end. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I've had comedians who've been on the show who have said that they would think it's better to just start doing comedy rather than doing comedy classes. And yet quite a lot now who have come on and said they think comedy class is actually a really good idea. And I would say my experience from doing or maybe not official classes, but doing a comedy program and, and working through comedy books, it's, su- it's super helpful. And I would definitely do a live class if I could go and do it. But there are some, you know, because so much is online now, there's a lot more available. You don't have to necessarily be on the West Coast of America where there might be a lot of comedy clubs. And No, in New York, there's probably 20 different comedy classes. I think in most, I can't speak for the UK, but in the US, I would think, most medium-sized or bigger cities have a comedy club and they'll have a comedy class. Yeah. I, I know there is one in Barcelona, which is probably the nearest one, the nearest one to me, uh, but there are certainly a few in London as well. And yeah, I'm definitely thinking about uh, following up one of those. So I think that's a great recommendation for people that if you'd like to be, if you don't have to want to be a comedian, but if you want to be funnier, then comedy classes, comic books on stand-up comedy. And I'm sure there's probably like free resources on how to do this as well that you might be able to get started with. Oh, there's tons. Just Google it. When I started out, the internet was pretty new. And I mean, it was around for a few years, but most comedians didn't yet have websites because it was expensive and it's just not something everybody had. And Lori Kilmartin, an American comedian, had a website where she talked about what her life was like as a road comic. And I just, I would read stories and that didn't teach me how to write comedy, but it taught me a lot about how the stand-up comedy business worked. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's, I mean, a book is, you know, what, 15, $20. So you can buy a few books and it's not a huge investment of money. And of course there's libraries. It's, it's and, enough to get started. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be a $2,000 comedy program, <laughs> or, right. uh, although those can be great as well. Um, I'm pretty sure there's going to be people who might be interested to know more about you, your comedy gigs, maybe booking you as a speaker, maybe having you write some jokes yep. for them. How could people find out more about you, Sean? Right down there, my website, my URL is brainchampagne.com. And it's easy to contact me through there if you can spell champagne. And if you can't spell brain, you're either not a native English speaker or you probably can't afford me. But brainchampagne.com. You actually can, I have something on there you can sign up for about how to tell a joke and it's free. And there's a lot of, there's about 50,000 words worth of comedy material on my website. Some of it is essay. That's a lot of jokes. Some of it is essays. Some of it is late night monologue material and topical comedy. So you can read through that and sort of get an idea of where jokes come from and how to structure a joke. Yeah, I've taken a look around your website. It's definitely worth a visit and, and you also get to see a bit of you in action as well, which is totally worthwhile. And uh, it, often often people misspell brain as Bryant. 
So if anyone's going to briancampaign.com, have, have you prepared for that eventuality? Did you book you that? Know, no, I should have, and I didn't. And then somebody got briancampaign.com and it was a hairdresser somewhere. And I'm like, I should have thought of that. I got feeling.com <laughs> with various spellings. So if people spelled my name wrong, yeah. but I, I think Brian Champagne, the website went away, but it still wasn't available. Yeah. Really well, at least they're not stealing your traffic, hopefully. I don't think so. I think, I think now if you type in Brian Champagne, Google or your browser might say, did you mean brain champagne? Let's hope so. <laughs> Let's get the, the traffic over to you. Are there any particular final words you'd like to leave people with today? Um, look both ways before you cross the street. <laughs> uh, if Always the, solid advice. If the people did, if the utility company that's digging up the street in front of my house is listening, could you please not jackhammer at 7.30 in the morning? I, I think the, those are wonderful words to wrap up on today. <laughs> it, it amazes me how many people I see nearly getting themselves killed walking into traffic or each other every single day because they're not paying attention. So looking well, for three months already is actually good advice. Because you're from a country where people drive on the other side. I am from that country, but we no, drive like, on the same side here in Spain where right. I live. Uh, so I we, we, we also drive on the right. Uh, but yes, you're right. People in the UK, they're definitely driving on the wrong side of the road. Sean, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and insights and experience with us as well. It's been really useful. I hope people will come and check out your website and uh, maybe find out more about you and maybe come and work with you a bit and get you writing some jokes for them or book you for a speaking uh, comedy gig for their corporate events. But uh, nonetheless, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for joining me. Also, it's been fun. I hope they check out my website because I've been here for 40 minutes and I haven't been very funny. So I hope that, <laughs> hope that will change their opinion of me if they go to my website and see some actual comedy content. There, there's a lot of humor there and it, you will laugh. You will laugh. Go, so go and check out the website. It's much funnier than our conversation today. Sean, Eli, thank you so much. It has been said that dying is easy, comedy is hard. So comedy is a real skill that we can hopefully apply into our lives. And I do think it's a critical skill for influence and persuasion. We tend to like people who can make us laugh. And so being able to add some humor into your social interactions, into your professional interactions, and into your presentations and public speaking is really going to accelerate the process for having people trust and like you, developing that rapport, having relationships, increasing sales. It just speeds everything up. So if you think that influence and persuasion doesn't require humor, well, maybe you can get by without it. But if you really want to speed things up, this is a great tool to have in your influence and persuasion tool belt. Now, I do encourage you always to make sure that you utilize the tools of influence and persuasion that you may learn in this show only to put good things out into the world. If you are here for any other reason than that, then I hope you will at least come to find that it is far better to be utilizing these things to do good and to make positive change in the world and in people's lives, not just for our own selfish needs. Look, we should definitely get what we want out of the deal as well. Whilst we're helping other people, we get helped as well. We earn money whilst we do that. But please, let's all be ethical influencers and persuaders as we go out into the world. So I hope you found at least one thing from this episode that you can put into practice, whether is signing up for a comedy course or finding a, a book on stand-up comedy or watching some stand-up comedy videos to see if you can come up with a few jokes of your own find some way to add a bit more humor into your life lighten up other people's days and your own in the process 
And make sure you don't miss my next episode with the amazing Korean Thara Khan, where we will be talking about storytelling for influence and building even more on these tools of influence and persuasion to turn us into the experts in the psychology and application of influence and persuasion in life and business. Wherever you're doing, wherever you're going, have an amazing day. Go and make great things happen. See you next time.